Well, um, since we have some newlyweds, I want to just jump into a message uh, that this message kind of took on a life of its own this week. Uh, you and I have all watched the news and and have grieved all sorts of things. But I want to start out, we have some young couples here, and so maybe they might relate to this, is um, the personal question, and I want to just create safe space, is has anyone ever re-gifted? I mean, there's a whole episode of Seinfeld dedicated to the really important topic of being a re-gifter. And Truth be told, especially if you're a newlywed, it actually kind of makes some sense. I know it's mildly tacky. I know it kind of seems ingrateful, but there's a stewardship issue involved in re-gifting, especially for young married gifts. I mean, think about it. We all create a registry and also have one of those odd relatives who thinks they want to be original or they really know you and then they get you something completely random and you're like, oh my gosh, uh, thank you so much. How do we use this? Where do we put this? Uh, I, I, whatever. Um, but truth be told, if you end up with three crock pots, there's always at least some bartering to do among newlyweds. Now, Years and years and years ago, before there was electricity and internet, we got married. And we had a group of young couples that we got married uh, kind of within the same year with. And so we did some bartering, you know, because we didn't get a crock pot, but we had like three chip bowls with salsa features. And, and so we did some swapping and it worked out great. But our one friends, Jen and Dan, received a gift. And inside the gift, they realized very quickly that the gift had been re-gifted because as they opened the box of the gift, the card from the original givers was still inside. Now that crossed the line. Um, and, and so it was really embarrassing to have this moment and we all kind of made fun of the other couple knowing that we all sort of were re-gifting anyway. My point in bringing this whole topic up is this. The gospel of Jesus is an amazing gift, and it's always intended to be re-gifted. The gospel comes to us, and the word literally means good news. And it's good in the sense that it actually has the power to change lives if we let it. It represents the power of hope to help each of us from the inside out. The gospel has the capacity to change the way we see our own lives, the lives of others, and our world. And oh, by the way, our seeing needs saving. God has been actively trying to restore the sight of a society who are blind to injustice and inequality. God sees the needs of the vulnerable, the margins, the oppressed, and the gospel is the one resource that crosses social divides. Because the gospel, when it's properly understood, reminds us that we're all equal of, in the eyes of God and in need of the same kind of redemption. There's a story I've shared before, but it bears repeating, and it comes to us. Um, there was a man by the name of 
Adolf Eichmann. He was the mastermind behind the execution of all the Jews during World War II. He created the architecture in which millions were, were sent to the gas chambers. Well, after the war, he flees and he ends up uh, in some South American hideout, but they eventually find him. And in 1960, he's extradited back to Israel to stand trial for his war crimes against the Jewish people. And there the prosecutors bring a string of former concentration camp prisoners who are all tortured either directly or oversight by Eichmann himself. And, he's, and, and then they call this one guy who had a miraculously escaped Auschwitz. His name was Yuel Diener. And he goes into the courtroom to testify. Um, and, and he stares at Eichmann through this, this bulletproof glass. And here he stares at the man who had murdered his friends, who, who had presided over the slaughter of millions more. And their eyes met, and the courtroom falls silent. And then Diener begins to sob, and not just sob, but uncontrollably, and he collapses in the middle of the courtroom on the floor. And everyone's wondering, what is it? Is he just overcome with hatred? Is he exhausted by grief? Is he thinking about all the people that he's lost? And it's at that moment, Yule Diener, staring at the eyes of Adolf Eichmann, realized he was just a normal guy. Later, in a 60-minute interview, he explained, Eichmann wasn't the demonic personification of evil that he had expected. Rather, he was just this ordinary man that just like anyone else. And in this instant, Diener came to the stunning realization that sin and evil are the human condition. And here's what he said. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I'm capable to do this exactly like he. And that's when he said the famous words, I realized then Eichmann is in all of us. In other words, Friends, there's blood on all of our hands. We're all culpable, we're all responsible, and we're all even guilty, even though our actions uh, might be active or, or in the passive voice. See, in God's eyes, we're all equal and we're all in need. And whether you lean towards the left or you lean towards the right, the left-right is not a spectrum, but they're two sides of the same coin. Both sides, whether you right or left side of politics, is equally full of contempt, full of accusation, and responsible. See, our enemy is not your neighbor. Our seeing needs saving. And today I want to look in Matthew 9, and Miss Ashley set it up well for us to talk about Jesus having this healing encounter, but it was much more than a physical healing. And in Acts chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, look, with, look at the words of Jesus. It's beginning in verse 27. I want to start there, but then we'll take a, a, a little bit broader picture. But he says these words. 
as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when they had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and he said, According to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. <clears throat> and then Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and they spread the news about him all over the region. Now, let me just unpack this briefly. At this point, many followers were seeking after Jesus for what they could get. They could get healing. They could get a free meal. Um, they could get deliverance from something that plagued him. But it was a consumeristic approach towards meeting immediate needs. And Jesus stops to heal both physical sight of the blind, but also the spiritual sight of the crowds. They cried out, Son of David. And that was a cry that was most used for the Messiah, but it usually came with an expectation from the Jewish people for political or military figure rather than healing of oneself. And these guys, hear this, these two blind guys could actually see the difference between healing and Jewish religion or Jewish desire for an overthrow or to be reinstated in power. In other words, they could see the difference between God's power and worldly dominance. Biblical law at that time mandated that people show concern for the least of least, in this case, the blind. But there were few professions outside of begging that would actually be open to them. But here's the hope for all of us. You can be blind and still follow Jesus's voice. You could have an idea about God and you can still follow him. The process of salvation is choosing to walk in closer proximity to him and letting our hearts be shaped. In other words, you can be broke or broken and still follow Jesus. You can be underserved by society, but fully privileged in the kingdom of God. You can live on the margin of society and remain in the presence of God's love. And the gospel is supposed to be the great equalizer in light of a world that's obsessed with both privilege and inequality. And since we're talking about our ability to see, let's zoom out from this moment in this Acts or Matthew 9 so that we see this a small picture and look at a larger picture. Because if we look at the snapshot of chapter 9, here's what we see. And if you just begin at it, you see that Jesus comes along and he heals a paralytic and offers forgiveness. Number two, he calls Matthew a tax collector, one who is probably guilty of white-collar Wall Street-type crimes. And he says, come and follow me. Because, oh, by the way, it's not the healthy, but the sick that need a doctor. And from there, Jesus goes on to heal the sick 
and a, a woman and raises her dead girl before getting on to these two blind men that we just wrote about. Now, if you've been invited to follow Jesus, which the disciples had, and you know, and knew that he wouldn't be with you forever, what is the picture of following that Jesus wants all of us to see? See, if we read on at the end of chapter 9, we get this picture that says that the workers are few. It doesn't say that the believers are few. Lots of people believed in God. Lots of people have been converted. But he says that the workers, my language, the apprentices, the, the disciples were few. So Jesus was healing these two blind men, I believe, as an illustration for those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus. He was creating an illustration of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. See, it's really tempting to read this passage as a historical text and completely miss the point. Jesus was modeling what to do with the power and authority that comes in knowing the gospel. He gives you a recipe for what it means to follow. See, we're called to do the same as what Jesus did. And as Jesus went through all the towns and villages, he has a moment where he thinks out loud, loud enough for the disciples to hear, loud enough for us to hear. It says that he had compassion on the crowds, but they were harassed and helpless. And he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers, the disciples are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers to the harvest field. The gospel is about helping people see, feel, taste, hear what salvation looks like in Christ. And Jesus' primary strategy for the message of really good news is and has always been you. It's always been you. It's always been me. We're looking for better systems. We're, we're looking for better social programs. We're looking for innovative nonprofits. We're looking to cures for disease. We're looking to better government leaders. We're, we're, none of that is wrong. But when it comes to our individual responsibility, we have to see that not only are we part of the problem, we're also in Christ able to be part of the solution. Systemic problem has always been with us in every age, in every regime, in every era, in every people group. But the gospel was supposed to be the great interrupter of it. There's a story that comes to us out of the 5th century. Some of you might be familiar with this story. It was made famous by President Ronald Reagan in 1984 at the National Prayer Breakfast. But that's not where I originally heard it. It's the story of a monk from what is now modern-day Turkey who walked from Asia Minor. His name was Telemachus. Telemachus came. He devoted himself to solitude and contemplation, to be set apart from popular opinion, to be lived separate from the crowds so that he could better hear from the voice of God. He felt led on a journey to Rome. And in 429 AD, 
Telemachus travels to Rome, and upon entering Rome, he, he sees this huge crowd, and he kind of gets swept up by the crowd. It wasn't a riot yet. It was a big spectacle at the Colosseum in Rome. And at that time, as you can imagine what was going on, Romans would, quote, and I use this term loosely, lead. Really what they would do was distract the masses of people with what they called bread and circus. And so they create in the Colosseum a little food and entertainment to pacify the masses from becoming mobs and inciting violence against the government. What they were entertaining was what we know, know now know as the gladiator games. And the entertainment was gruesome gladiator competition as seen in movies like Ben-Hur and Gladiator. And people were cheering and being entertained by the sport that led to death. So a fifth century monk who feels offended by this, who feels violated by this, is swept up in the crowd and he's going, what in God's green earth is wrong with all you people? How is this even entertaining? And as people cheered at the death of the marginalized, under the, 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 the might of these mighty warriors, Telemachus stands up at the crowd and he begins yelling, in the name of Christ, forbear. Forbear was the word for stop. In the name of Christ, stop. Well, his voice is getting drowned out, but he begins walking down the steps towards the surface, the playing field. Meanwhile, the crowd begins to notice what's happening. And now he walks onto the gladiator field and he's still yelling, in the name of Christ, stop this. Well, the crowd turns their passion towards him and they were infuriated at the interruption of their entertainment. And they began to stone him all the way to death by this once raucous crowd who was cheering for the death of these victims at the hands of the gladiators were now ch cheering and stoning this, this monk. The amazing thing, and if you go back into history books, three days later, the emperor put a permanent end to the gladiator games because one man chose to set the temperature rather than reflect the climate. One man sees what others don't. One man sees systemic treatment of people as inhumane while others saw it as normal and even acceptable. He changed history and it cost him his life. And there are things that you and I can't unsee after this week. I can't unsee the officer's knee on the neck of George Floyd as life just left his body. I can't unsee rioting and violence uh, as an awful response. I can't unsee finger pointing, blame, accusation, inequality, and injustice. But the gospel gives us the power to be healed. See, the reality is, is Eichmann is in all of us. 
And the power of the gospel is that it can change our way of seeing. It's like the gospel adds a sixth sense because in Christ, we have a new way of seeing, seeing and hearing and tasting and smelling and touching another person's life. It can interrupt us in a crowded room with a whisper. It moves us to advocate for another without having any actual personal gain. This is what the gospel is supposed to do when it takes root inside of us. The gospel moves us to compassion because we learn that we're all needy and someone's needs are just different than our own. And through the gospel, we come to understand that in my weakness, in my limitation, his strength is made perfect. See, Jesus's invitation through that snapshot of, of Matthew 9 was that we would all participate in healing, in forgiving, in calling people to follow us because there's a better way, that there would be an actual laying on of hands and a praying for one another, that there would be a kind of deliverance from the things that oppress or bind up. See, the gospel was always supposed to not only liberate us, it was supposed to flow through us and be the greatest social change agent ever known to humankind. So I want to invite you to pray with me now. And I want to invite you to pray uh, a prayer that I have uh, on our screen today. Uh, and if you would just repeat the words uh, that I have in red, and let's make this sort of our closing prayer as we, before we go into a time of worship. And this is just a prayer. It's sort of a lament for people living in a violent land. And so, Father, we pray a prayer of agreement, and I just pray for my friends, God of mercy. We confess that we are a nation enamored with violence. We have celebrated the violence we call good, only to be shocked by the violence we know is evil. May he who confess that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace have the courage to turn swords into plows and spears into rakes. May we embody the way of peace. We lament the needless and inhumane death of George Floyd and so many others like him, and we pray for their souls. Together, would you pray with me? Lord, Lord, we grieve a system of injustice and the vulnerable living among us, and we pray for your healing and your protection, your justice and your mercy. Together, Lord, we lament our culture is entertained by violent acts and we pray for an end to violence and rioting and looting and destruction of property. Together, Lord, 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 Lord our land. we lament our violent rhetoric of accusation and blame instead of learning from your servants of peace. Together, so we pray as you, as we learn from your servant, St. Francis, Lord, make us an instrument of your peace and where there is hatred together, where there is injury, where there is doubt, where there is despair, where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, Father of light, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood, uh, 
understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, and it is pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.